Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, it's the second episode in a sequence of three in which Helen and I are trying to answer your questions. Today, it's questions about UK politics and the future of the union. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And with the summer of COVID-delayed sport now underway, the LRB has a special offer for Talking Politics listeners. Subscribe for just £1 an issue, that's six months of the LRB, for just £12. And you'll also get a collection of the LRB's best pieces about sport, introduced by me, David Runciman, and featuring Tarek Ali on cricket, Carl Miller on football, Amir Srinivasan on surfing, among many others, all for free. Just use the URL lrb.me slash freebook, one word. That's lrb.me slash freebook. As with last week, thank you all so much for the many, many questions that we had on these topics. We're really sorry if we didn't manage to get to the one that you asked, though we hope there's going to be more opportunity for these question and answer sessions in the autumn. Our producer, Catherine Carr, is putting the questions to Helen and me, and we started with one about the Liberal Democrats. When I was in England in the 90s, the Lib Dems seemed as likely as Tories or Labour to win elections. Could you review and or discuss what happened to the Lib Dems in the past 25 years? I have to say, I think the person who's remembering that probably is slightly looking at it through rose-tinted spectacles. That's not exactly, I don't know about you, Helen, not my memory (laughs) of the 90s. But what certainly has changed is that through the 90s, and actually up until 2010, and the 2010 general election was almost the high point of this, the Lib Dems were the place to go if you were discontented with the two main parties. They didn't have a monopoly of that space, but the nationalists were much less prominent. Scotland and in Wales, the Greens were less prominent. The parties of the further to the right than the Conservatives were fairly extreme, hard, racist nationalists. So there was no UKIP or Brexit party. But what probably gave it that impression was that if people were dissatisfied, the Lib Dems were where they went. And that through the 1990s, the 2000 to 2010, the Lib Dems seemed to be climbing the third party mountain, getting quite close to the top as they did in 2010. And then something shifted. So that's in one way, the big difference that since 2010, and certainly since the end of the coalition, the space, which is still quite a squeeze space, because the two main parties still hoover up most of the votes, but what's left is not the Lib Dems to own at all. But you know, they just won a by-election, one of their famous by-election victories. And in that sense, they are a little bit like they were in certainly in the 1990s and the 2000s, that they could pull off these amazing by-election victories. I'm not sure what you think, Helen, but it doesn't lead to any obvious plan for getting them back in the game. Well, I think that if we go back to the period of success and say, how did it come about? And then how did it end? So we start in 1997. It did, if you like, have a, a structural shape to it in that it was part of essentially an informal tactical alliance between voters, I don't mean at the party level, with Labour. So the Liberal Democrats were appealing to anti-conservative voters in seats, particularly that Labour wasn't going to be in a good position to win. Obviously, there was some hope from the Liberal Democrat leader at the time, Paddy Ashdown, that that might lead to sort of a grander reconfiguring of the non-conservative forces in British politics, and that didn't come about in part, I think, because of the very success of that anti-Tory 
tactical voting that meant that Labour ended up with such a large majority. If we stop midway through in the mid 2000s, we could say that by the 2005 election, the coalition of voters that the Liberal Democrats had had become much messier. They were trying to take votes from the left of Labour, particularly using the Iraq war. But they were also taking voters or retaining them who were more conservative leaning than Labour leaning. And I think in a way, although that the 2010 election was disappointment because it had been seen early on in the campaign as one where the Liberal Democrats can make significant gains and they didn't materialise, they actually did a rather good job in holding together that diverse coalition, helped on the left side of it by the appeal to students about tuition fees. And then the story of the next five years becomes the story of how that coalition falls apart on both sides of it. So the tuition fees hurts them very badly on the left. By the 2015 election, the Conservatives are able to use the prospect of a Labour SNP, either coalition or working agreement to undermine the willingness of those Liberal Democrat voters who would prefer a Conservative government to a Labour government. And they ended up with nothing. But I think the explanation is that what they tried, certainly by the 2005 election, of doing something that in the end was unsustainable, which was to try to take voters from both main parties from different positions. The by-election, the Cheshireman Amersham by-election, a surprise in some ways, although a very familiar kind of by-election. People have been reminded they shouldn't have forgotten that the Liberal Democrats and the Liberals before them were good at these kind of by-elections. And the fact that the local campaign didn't seem to sit that neatly with national policy, neither here nor there, they know how to win them. William Haig had an article in the Times with an image I quite like, where he said the winning of this by-election is like the beginning of the Sisyphean task of rolling the ball up the hill at his description of the previous 25 years, or at least leading to the coalition, was the Liberal Democrats rolling that giant boulder up the hill. You get to the top of the hill and then, of course, it rolls all the way back down again. And here they are on another 25-year struggle to inch it back up the hill. Is it really worth it? And Matthew Paris, writing in the Times, has told the Liberal Democrats to give up. It's pointless. It's not worth it. It's totally comprehensible why Conservatives might want to encourage the Liberal Democrats to give up. Because the Liberal Democrats do pose a threat to the Conservatives. I know Matthew Paris is not a Conservative anymore. But pose a threat to the Conservatives shown by that by-election. It's quite clear that Quite a few Tory MPs, I imagine, are quite nervous about what might happen. What's different now, and it relates to what you were saying, is that the Liberal Democrats clearly are back to being part of the anti-conservative coalition. And I'm sure this will connect to questions we're going to answer in a bit about Labour and others. But it does remind me a bit of the 1990s before Blair came to power and various periods of conservative domination. The anti-Tory vote remains substantial enough if only people would line up their votes correctly in different constituencies for the purposes of getting the Tory out to do enormous damage to conservative prospects at a general election. You can do it at by-elections. It's much, much harder to see how it happens in a general election. And it doesn't feel to me we're any nearer, never mind a formal agreement, a really durable, informal understanding among the parties, and among the voters, perhaps, but an informal understanding among the voters doesn't really mean anything, I think, in a general election. I mean, there's always tactical voting. There's always the possibility of tactical voting on a greater scale. But translating from a by-election, that kind of remarkable success, which required the Labour vote to disappear to nothing in a constituency where Labour had done OK in the past. It wasn't the biggest swing ever, but it was the smallest vote share for Labour in a modern by-election. 
And turning that into a general election strategy, it does still feel Sisyphean to me. Well, I think the thing in the end, though, about this by-election is that what happened to the the Labour vote is ultimately neither here nor there. The issue was the ability of the Liberal Democrats um, to stop people who would otherwise vote Conservative, uh, and indeed did so at the general election not that long ago from doing so. This looks to me that it, it's back to the, the kind of tactics in a particular place that the, the Liberal Democrats were using to try to take Conservative votes and did so pretty successfully, as I said, until 2010. After all, it was precisely because David Cameron wasn't able to win those voters back again to the Conservatives, did very well in the, the fights it had to have with the Labour Party in 2010, at least outside um, Scotland. But it, it just didn't do well at all in the fights it was having with the Liberal Democrats. I mean, this is a, a by-election that at its heart has the ability of the Liberal Democrats to mop up angry Conservative voters. Or to persuade them to stay at home. Yeah, or to persuade them to stay at home. And that the default mode of protest for Conservative um, voters, particularly actually in the period in which the Conservatives have been um, back in power, has been to to vote Liberal Democrat. We can see that the, the issue that seems to, I mean, if you leave the HS2, issue aside, which is obviously, you know, like quite not entirely specific to that part of Buckinghamshire, but is there's very strong passions about it in that part. The issue of planning, that reverberates across a lot more Conservative held seats. And the tensions within the Conservative Party about that in terms of the willingness of backbench Conservative MPs in those kind of seats to accept what the Johnson government wants to do in the the planning area is going to cause the Conservatives a considerable amount of difficulty. And I think that the, the Liberal Democrats will be able to exploit that, but they can't simultaneously exploit that and then be the other side of the progressive alliance I think because once the voters these like Shesham and Amisham are faced with the prospect of the Liberal Democrats aligning with the Labour Party then they're much more likely to be defecting back to the Conservatives at a general election. Exactly I was going to say that the heart of the problem is that persuading Conservative voters to stay at home is much harder in a general election when Conservative voters think that a Labour Party not led by Tony Blair essentially has a chance of winning and in a by-election, it's neither here nor there. That's why by-elections can produce these outlandish results. There is no consequence. And in fact, it's an extraordinarily effective protest vote because it may well be going to change Tory policy on the things that the voters really minded about. I mean, an amazingly effective piece of local politics impacting on national policy. But in a general election, in that seat, I mean, this is a really interesting one because it was a big swing and now it's chunky Lib Dem majority. But to hold that seat in a general election looks hard to me even now. Yeah, and I think as well... You can say that the for the Liberal Democrats to do well in that space, then they need a, a Labour Party that isn't too far to the left and conventionally understood left. I mean by that is somebody like Jeremy Corbyn obviously posed a huge difficulty for the Liberal Democrats. So that their inability at the 2019 general election to appeal to enough Conservative Remainers to make a difference can ultimately be put down to Corbyn's Labour Party and the fact that enough of those Conservative Remainers hated the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister more than they hated the prospect of Britain leaving the European Union. But there isn't, I think, a, a settled enough sense amongst enough voters of like what Keir Starmer's Labour Party represents to take that dynamic away yet, at least yet. That was the Lib Dem episode then. <laughs> um, that was a short answer for you. Yeah. The second question is, are Green politicians in the UK capable of forming part of a governing coalition or eventually becoming a party of government? What would need to change about them 
or their policies or their opponents for that to be the case? I think any question in politics that says, is it possible? The answer is usually yes. A party of government is one thing, but forming part of some kind of governing coalition, there are obvious barriers in the way of which the electoral system is by far the biggest. I don't know what the threshold is at which you'd feel a party has to reach or cross in order to be a plausible player in a a coalition, or at the very least to have an informal supply agreement with a minority government. It's more than one, though, I think. I don't think Caroline Lucas on her own can do it. The Greens conceivably could start to pick up a few more seats, but it's even if you set the bar really low at about 10, it's quite hard to get from 1 to 10 for the Greens. And if you try and identify the constituencies that get you up to 10, it gets really hard. But it's possible. I mean, everything's possible. I suppose the one thing I would say is it's really hard to think of a party making that kind of breakthrough without a leader who has some kind of national prominence. And the Greens have always shied away from that kind of leadership. They still have complicated leadership arrangement and joint leadership and their most prominent national politician, Caroline Lucas, is not their leader. If I had to set one condition for it, it probably would be a green politician breaking through to national consciousness at the leadership level. Even when we think about the Liberal Democrats that we've just been talking about, prominent political leadership did play a part. Paddy Ashdown, Charles Kennedy, Nick Clegg, they were in many ways more prominent than their party and um, their profiles made a big difference to that 25-year Sisyphean struggle to push the boulder up the hill the Greens have never had that. I think they need it. The future of the Green Party in British politics can't really be separated from the the future of the Labour Party and and how the power struggle in the Labour Party that's that's going on is going to play itself out. If the Labour Party ends up with somebody relatively quickly who isn't Keir Starmer, and particularly I think if that person came a bit more from the the right of the party. It's not difficult, I think, to see how the Labour would sort of enter into a potentially separatist crisis in which the Labour Party actually broke up because there is clearly a great deal of dissatisfaction in the Labour Party amongst those um, people who supported Corbyn from the direction of travel since Starmer's taken over. And since Starmer doesn't seem able to stabilise his leadership as a, a crisis that involved the right of the party being strengthened as a as a consequence, I think, would lead to such a backlash from the left that something consequential would happen and that the Greens are a competitor for Labour for a certain section, uh, a not insubstantial, I would say, section uh, of the vote. But so long as the, the Labour Party can hold on to the Corbyn left and particularly its millennial activists who are very committed to green um, causes and I think it's it's difficult for anything really to change for the the Greens but if the Labour Party changes uh, and we see something decisive happening there then that is a space for the Greens. I mean, it does so much depend on the electoral system it is under some kind of proportional system of course the Greens would potentially be a party of government as they are now in Germany we should recognise that the Greens do govern in only a few places, but in a very small number of councils, and they form coalitions and so on. But if we had a proportional system, almost certainly the big parties would split in some way or another. And I think it is really interesting, exactly as you say, that the two bits of British politics that are closest, if you just look at manifestos and policy commitments, are the left of the Labour Party and the Green Party, and including on all sorts of international questions too. 
I was so struck by how Corbynite the Green Manifesto was, um, particularly in the 2017 election. What would happen in that space if those two groupings, Greens and the left, the Corbyn section of the Labour Party, were competing not under first past the post, but under some kind of PR system, would they end up merging? I suspect in some sense they would. Presumably the rump Labour Party would still be the Labour Party, so the Greens might take over. I mean, there is a scenario in which you do see the Greens becoming a force. That section of the electorate, I suspect, tops out at about 25%. I mean, it only gets up to 40% under Corbyn because it's the Labour Party. If it's not the Labour Party under first past the post, 15, 20, 25% max, I would guess not least because relying on that millennial section of the population demographically is not a winning strategy. But under that system, of course, that number of votes can give you a share of government. But under our system, I think the Labour Party holds together for the foreseeable future. There's obviously lots of structural forces in British politics, not least, as you said and kept saying, the electoral system that holds the the Labour Party in place. But I don't think that that means that, that that there is nothing that can break it apart. And I think that a, a, a situation in which a new leader has not been able to really improve the position, despite doing something really radically different than his predecessor, and in which the party has got the ability to lose different bits of its existing coalition, and that it may actually be just extraordinarily difficult for it to reclaim the the voters that it's lost over the last two decades. Betting on ongoing stasis where the Labour Party is concerned is, I'm a bit sceptical about. And it does happen. The, the main parties do break apart under this electoral system. It happens about once every 100 years. So we're due another one. Um, happened to the Liberals about 100 years ago. I guess the, the challenge in the way it happens to the Liberals and the Labour Party replace them. It took a while, but eventually as the, the second party, one of the two main parties, in British politics, I just can't see under the, the social and demographic conditions of Britain, the Greens becoming that other party. It's not going to be from Labour to the Greens as it was from the Liberals to Labour. It's a much more fragmented political landscape anyway. It's the thing I I just, I don't think I have the ability to think it through. I just don't know how it works. Labour breaking apart under this electoral system without there being a party over time to replace Labour as the alternative party of government to the Conservative Party. That's the thing. I just don't know how that happens without the system itself changing, which it might. I mean, it might be that the consequence of all this is the system, the electoral system itself changes. It is pretty hard to to think about this because the contingencies around the emergence of the Labour Party and the replacement of the Liberal Party by the Labour as the principal um, contender to the Conservatives have got some pretty significant differences than what's what's going on now. In England, we might have a, a predominantly two-party politics, but in Scotland, we've got a dominant party in the SNP, and in, in Wales, we've got something that's much more like multi-party, that, despite the dominance of the Labour Party. Because they have different electoral systems. If you look at the, the first 10 years or so of the interwar period, maybe even a little bit longer, there is something that is a version of like three-party politics that is is going on. You know, it's not that you get the instant replacement once Labour makes its breakthrough of the Liberal Party. And I think that it's also worth remembering that if we were having this, maybe we were having this conversation actually back in like 2015, 
what seemed to be the case then, that it was very difficult for any of the parties to get more than about, I think it was about 37%, was it, that the Conservatives managed in um, 2015, that Labour had won its majority in 2005 um, with only 35%. And so it is possible in our electoral system for both of the supposedly principal parties to go quite low, at least in terms of the share of the popular vote. Now, obviously, since then, quite a lot has changed and the forms in which protest votes, particularly in England, have changed. So we've gone from a a position where in the 2015 election, there was the the protest votes going to UKIP, still perhaps some legacy of protest votes going to the Liberal Democrats. And now that party that could mop up the kind of UKIP style protest votes has not got a space for the time being. But it's not out of the question, I would say, and it goes back, I think, to the energy questions in some respects, that space for that kind of protest vote, which is not where the Liberal Democrats are going to position themselves, is going to come into play. So the person asking this question might think, well, I've been talking about this and not thought that maybe the Green Party rises with the rise of green political questions up the agenda. But again, I think the general lesson of British politics is as an issue rises up the political agenda, the main parties co-opt it. The Labour Party and the Conservative Party can co-opt this issue. It doesn't. There's no obvious translation from something mattering to the small party that stands for that thing being the beneficiary to the point that it could start to stake a claim to government. But you never know. I mean, again, I, I totally agree with you. If you think of the interwar period, that's a long time. And the kind of shift you could get, if, if Labour is structurally in a terminal state, something's got to give. And over a 15, 20-year period that coincides with the climate crisis that is coming, anything is possible. I think as well, the reason why green politics has risen to the fore in the way in which it has, not just in this country, but in quite a number of countries, that the main parties have, the Republicans in the United States being an exception, have decided that it can work as a growth strategy and as a jobs strategy on top of anything else it's supposed to be in terms of addressing climate issues. Because there isn't, I think, any evidence yet that there have votes to be had in an approach to green politics that's focused on making collective sacrifices and everybody changing radically changing their behaviours. Green politics is emerging in the forms in which it has in electoral politics. And I mean by that the electoral politics of the parties who've got a chance of forming um, governments because that they can think of the issues as ways in which the economy can do better and more jobs can be created. And in terms of Boris Johnson's government, a way of pursuing its its levelling up agenda and perhaps strengthening, as they see it, the union in relation to um, Scotland. And and that's not easy space for the Green Party to enter into because they're associated with a form of a response to climate issues and green issues. This raises fundamental questions about the ability of economies to grow rather than this is an opportunity for us to create new jobs. And if that's where the line is between green politics and labour Corbynite politics, then labour Corbynite politics wins in that space. It's more likely to, yes. The next question is, do Helen and David think that Keir Starmer could legitimately win the next election and become prime minister? And if so, what do they think needs to happen politically in order for that to happen? It's very difficult as things stand to see how the Labour Party is going to be in a position to win the next election. You only have to look at the number of seats that it has to win and the places where those seats have to be won and then the relationship between the places where those seats have to be won and the the fault lines that run through Labour's coalition to see the difficulty. There's the 
added difficulty for Labour, I think, to be in a position where it can win a, a, a parliamentary majority. It would me- need to be in a position where it looks like it's going to win a very substantial parliamentary majority because that would take away the, let's call it the, the English question aspect um, of it and the need as things stand. Though I think we're going to come on to a, a, a question about why how things might change for Labour to win a majority of English seats in order to be able to legislate in England. And as soon as then you get to the prospect that the polls are tightening, Labour's got maybe an opportunity to win, then the Conservatives, in principle at least, could make the response that they did in 2015 and throw up the spectre of a a Labour Party that can only govern in England with SNP um, support. So these things do make it very difficult for the Labour Party under any leader to win. And then I think you've got to add on top of that, because the question does ask about Keir Starmer, is is that Keir Starmer has just proved pretty ineffective as a political leader so far. It doesn't look like his qualities are well suited to the leadership of a of a political party in contemporary British politics. I'm afraid I agree. I mean, I think if you start from sort of the other end and say, well, what kind of government are we talking about? I think a Labour majority, nothing is impossible, but it's as close to impossible under current conditions as you can get. It's really hard to see how Labour wins a majority because of Scotland, but not just because of Scotland. So the question is then, what form of government is this? A coalition? A coalition with whom? With the SNP? Maybe we'll come on to that. I don't see how that works. So we're talking about probably a minority Labour government. I mean, if the Labour Party not doesn't even have to win more seats, but if the Labour Party wins or deprives the Conservatives of enough seats that it's hard for the Conservatives to govern... Starmer will take his chance however he can. Um, no one's going to be squeamish at this point. It might be the weakest government in modern British history, but it, he'll give it a go. So we're probably talking about a minority government depending upon the support of other parties, nationalist parties, Liberal Democrats, maybe, as we were talking about, even Greens. That's a pretty unappealing prospect for most voters, I think, who might be flirting with abandoning the Conservatives. And then you get back to that question, which is the thing that galvanises Conservative voters. Is the thought possibly not so much of a Labour majority, but of this kind of mishmash former government and a Labour party beholden to other parties too. I think it's incredibly difficult. It's not, I think a majority is pretty much impossible. I think a minority Labour government under Keir Starmer is not impossible, but it's difficult. I do think the Labour party has a problem at the most basic level. Something beats nothing in politics. It's really easy to say what the Tories stand for at the moment. I was having this argument with someone, a North London Remainer, let's put it like that, um, saying, well, the problem is it's really easy to sum up what the Conservatives stand for. They stand for levelling up. They stand for not giving in on what they think of as the culture wars. They stand for a certain kind of sort of techno-driven or innovative green politics. They stand for making a success of Brexit, however you understand that. And the person I was talking to said, yeah, but they don't mean any of those things. You know, Johnson doesn't mean it. He's a liar. He's inconsistent. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Much better to stand for something that you don't mean than to mean things that you don't stand for. And Starmer's problem is he's the second, not the first. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the next question is... What does the government's floating of ending the English votes for English laws suggest about the Conservatives' view of the union? Who's going first here? You are. (laughs) Okay. It was a very um, striking story that came out, I think, last week in The Times, suggesting that that Michael Gove had drawn up proposals for ending this practice that was introduced after the 2015 election by the Cameron government, where right at the end, at least, that there had to be a parliamentary majority of English MPs, and meaning by that MPs for English um, constituencies, um, for a law that pertained only England to pass. And there were some complications around that because it was for the Speaker to decide um, when the provisions of a bill would only apply in England. In a way, I thought the most interesting thing about the story was the fact that the quotation that was used in the in the time story said that Gove had presented this as um, wanting to be fair to all parts of the union and to all parties and so the implication is which is kind of true but it's a bit of an odd thing for a conservative cabinet minister to say is is that the, the things need to be fairer for the Labour Party and this gets to the heart of the issue that we were just discussing in the the previous question uh, of the difficulties that Labour face in trying to win a a majority of English seats in order such that they would be able to govern with English votes for English laws, govern England, I should say, but English votes for English laws in place are absolutely formidable. I think the way, though, you might say that this wouldn't do anything to help the situation and presumably the motivation here is to say that which does make sense is is that in order for the union to be stabilized in the medium to long term it has to be possible for some party other than the conservatives to govern at Westminster even if you take English votes for English laws away that doesn't change the attitudes of English voters or enough English voters who can still do the thing that they did in 2015 which is to say like faced with the prospect of Labour and the SNP governing saying, we don't want that, we're going to have to vote Conservative in order to stop that from happening. And you might indeed say that actually taking away what might be seen as a safeguard of English votes for English laws, which effectively stops the a coalition of the Labour and the SNP being able to pass laws for England only, might actually only strengthen the desire of those voters to ensure that that possibility can't occur. I suppose at the back of this question is is something that relates to, as you say, what we were just talking about, which is how would it work for a Labour government to govern without an overall majority and without a majority of English seats in some kind of combination with the SNP? So there's the initial barrier, which is the voters have to swallow it, and they might not. But say they did, the tactics of 2015 didn't work, and um, people weren't quite as frightened as they were back then of Ed Miliband in conjunction with the SNP. So however it comes about, you get a Keir Starmer premiership. 
again, nothing is impossible, but as close to impossible, I think, is a formal coalition. I just cannot see how that would work, a Labour-SNB coalition on the lines of the Lib Dem-Conservative coalition. So we're talking about an informal arrangement, I suppose, something closer to, though none of the parties would want this to be the example, Theresa May's Conservative government and the DUP. But an arrangement that involves a series of trade-offs around getting certain kinds of legislation through in return for other legislative opportunities. And it seems that under those conditions, and it could happen, you you get enough Labour MPs in the House of Commons that Starmer can govern by trying to get legislation through, through a series of formal or informal arrangements with other parties. It would produce not constitutional chaos, but a need for very serious constitutional rethinking. All sorts of things then would be up for grabs, including the electoral system, I imagine, a second Scottish referendum, if it hasn't happened already, and lots of other things too. It would be extremely unstable. I don't suppose that government would last a full parliamentary term. And the, the, the more traditional mode of British politics, which is that absent a fixed term parliament act, governments don't necessarily last that long. I mean, I'm talking going back a while here, but the the time frame of parliaments and governments has been much longer recently than than the historical average. But a lot could happen in a relatively short time were that sort of Labour government in some arrangement with the SNP to come to pass. But it would be, I mean, apart from anything else, I think it would be fascinating. The possibility of quite significant constitutional change would be there under those conditions. And I don't think anyone would know how it would play out. Um, I think it would be, apart from anything else, really raw politics. The optimistic way, perhaps, from the Conservatives' point of view, at looking at what Gove seems to be proposing with English Votes for English Laws, would be to say that precisely because, in some sense, enough English voters would take care of the problem um, by not producing some version of a of a Labour government, a minority Labour government dependent on some version of SNP support, that this is a relatively easy concession that can be made um, to um, Scotland. And there are clearly you know, considerable unhappiness uh, amongst Scottish Conservative MPs at English votes for English laws, particularly the way in which it came about in the first place and the, the, the promise to introduce it that David Cameron made the, the day after the Scottish referendum in um, September 2014 that caused uh, a lot of anger. So you can, if you like, dilute a nationalist attack um, on the union by saying that, look, it's not the case that MPs for Scottish seats have been treated in a second-class way at Westminster by eliminating English votes for English laws. And then you can preclude the possibility, obviously from the Conservative self-interest as well, from this Labour, SNP, minority government emerging But as you say, David, there is the point in which all parties in government, their exercise of power comes to an end at some point. And at the moment, we're facing a situation in British politics where, leaving aside the question about whether the Labour Party splits or not, bracketing that off for a moment, the only plausible alternative is actually some version of a a Labour SNP government. And then to say that that is the only possible alternative government and there not to be English votes for English laws in place... Uh, and to allow then that government to take office and then try to govern in England without an English 
majority, it's not difficult to see how that gets into really difficult politics very quickly for the reasons that you said. So I think there are only difficult ways forward where the union is concerned, but I don't think that this is a straightforward remedy for Scottish grievances at all. A suggestion here from somebody who says that they think a great opposition position would be to adopt a policy of rejoining the customs union and or the single market. So not refighting the old battle or overturning the referendum, but it could be called something like jobs first Brexit or jobs first trade while emphasising the benefit to peace in Northern Ireland. Why not, they say. My answer to that question would be for that to be a plausible opposition strategy, either Northern Ireland or jobs would have to be an absolutely central, critical and indeed deeply damaging issue for the government. So at the moment, it wouldn't work to push for rejoining customs unions or the single market in order to create a jobs first Brexit or to preserve peace in Northern Ireland. It requires there to be an employment crisis on a scale we haven't seen yet, but I know, Helen, you think it could be coming or it would require the end of peace in Northern Ireland. And then that could have teeth to say, you know, we accept Brexit. These are the consequences. It may be true, it may be false that they are the consequences. I mean, the, the employment crisis may not at all be a consequence of Brexit, but at least the case could be made. The breakdown of peace in Northern Ireland almost certainly would be a consequence of Brexit. So Brexit has led us to this. So now this is our strategy for getting a palatable version of the thing that we are not trying to dispute, which is that we've left the European Union. But I don't think it works as an opposition strategy before the crisis has bitten, before there is something that can be pointed to, truly or falsely, and it be said by the opposition party, this is where Brexit has led us, this is what we have to do to make this right. To say that now would look like refighting the battles. So the point at which it is no longer refighting the battles is when there is quite clearly another battle to be fought, and that battle could be over peace in Northern Ireland, It could be over a massive employment crisis, but we're not there yet. It's pretty difficult for any opposition party to say that actually the whole of the United Kingdom's relationship with the European Union should be about the consequences for Northern Ireland, particularly given that the pressures that exist that are not going to go away in Northern Ireland for dealing with the Northern Ireland issue via a border poll. The difficulties and essentially the rejoin the single market and the customs union approach for the opposition are, are twofold. I mean, on top of the, what David's already said. And the, the first of them is, is that I think that there's this idea that we haven't really shaken that actually that the single market was the straightforward bit of the United Kingdom's membership of the European Union. It certainly made things much easier in relation to Northern, Northern Ireland. But if you look at the issues that pushed David Cameron or started to push David Cameron down the path that he took to the referendum, they began with issues in the single market and they culminated in issues in the single market. They began with issues around financial services and they culminated in issues around freedom of movement. So the idea that there was this straightforward thing in British the UK's membership, which was a single market, and then the other aspects of it around that were problematic and we tried to get back to the core. I don't think that really works. And then I would say is is that if you look to what happened, you know, in that period through 2019, when Theresa May's government was unable to pass the withdrawal agreement that it negotiated even after 
those sort of concessions were made, all sorts of kinds of concessions were made before the second vote, meaningful vote on that. What was really striking was the fact that the parliament that wasn't willing to pass that bill and that had you know, a potential um, majority in favour of not Brexiting at all, leaving the European Union at all, showed itself entirely unable um, to agree on which of the single market or the customs union was the was the thing that they wanted to hold on to in their future relationships. If you remember, there were all those votes about you know like possible options, and they, none of them would end up um, going through. And it was it was really quite striking that generally that the Conservative rebels, so the Conservative Remainers tended to be almost all in favour of um, staying in the single market. And on the Labour side, there was stronger support for staying in the customs union, not least because of the issues around freedom of movement that the, the single market raised and the fears in the Labour Party about what w- what it would mean for the party to commit itself unequivocally to freedom of movement. So I think the, the mantra of it can be all about jobs quite quickly cuts into these quite difficult um, questions for Labour. They're not only about freedom of movement, but quite a bit of it is. One here for something beating nothing, but how can one explain, this person says, the dearth of ideas and solutions being put forward by the Labour Party as a response to the COVID crisis? I don't have a lot to say on this, except, and this may be repeating things that we've said already, I mean, the COVID crisis is not over. Um, I think it has been hard for any opposition party to put forward alternatives under the conditions of the last 15 months, very unusual conditions in which the dynamics of politics are very unlike what normally happens and the space for proper oppositional contest is shrunken. I think in the medium term, it's not at all clear that Labour won't come up with some interesting options here as this moves from a health crisis to an economic crisis, or at least the economic consequences and the winners and losers and the distributional consequences become clearer. I mean, I'm not saying they'll do it well. I'm not saying we will know any more what they stand for in 18 months' time than we do now, but we might. I think it's a little harsh to judge the Labour Party on the last 15 months. If one wanted to wish the best for the Labour Party, one would hope that during that time there's been quite a lot of thinking that hasn't had an opportunity to be displayed in public that will allow Keir Starmer to say some interesting, challenging, possibly even some radical things. I think that's probably wishing for a lot because I think the Labour Party has spent too much of the last 15 months firefighting the last 15 months and trying to position itself in relation to relatively short-term imperatives. But it's not over yet. The COVID crisis is not over yet. And the dearth of ideas to this point, I think, is a function of the phase that we've been going through. But things are going to change. If you look at it in terms of the response of the the Westminster government that through this obviously has had to also act as the English government and the Welsh, then the Welsh government and the Scottish government. So you've had the three parties with the most seats of Conservatives in, in Westminster, Labour in Cardiff and the SNP in Edinburgh. There's clearly been some strong differences in terms of communicational style and in individual areas, perhaps about competence the Welsh have done particularly well with the speed in which the vaccination programme has been delivered, for example. But they've basically all been in the same political space. They've made the same assessment about what the, albeit perhaps at different speeds at the time, about what the primary risk is at 
the moment and that has been in terms of the health service and the ability of the health services to cope. We actually haven't had a contested politics between the parties about the big picture response to um, COVID as I say. The reason is because generally the clear majority of people across Britain have been in favour of a lockdown and uh, prioritising the health service approach to the crisis. And the minorities that dissent from that for one reason or another are simply not big enough for them to manifest in, in one of the one of the main uh, political parties. I mean, it is one of the features of the last 15 months. Public opinion has been really notably consensual in ways that weren't predicted at the outset. It was thought it would all be much more contested and it hasn't been. That will not last. I mean, we may be starting to come to the end of that. It still is you know, remarkably consensual. The extension of the last phase of lockdown was very popular. There were very large majorities in opinion polls that the government should delay. But it looks likely as we speak that we are about to come out of the last phase at some point in July. Um, there may be some differences again, but they are, I think, more presentational in between Scotland and England on this by September, October. Who knows what will happen? But say, for instance, what we get this winter is another health crisis, but it's much more a health crisis around flu and NHS capacity. It's not where we were last winter, worrying about being overwhelmed by a second wave. I can't believe that public opinion will remain consensual. And then there's an opportunity for opposition parties to do some creative things if they're up to it. Is the Labour Party up to it? I have no idea. The space where we began to see perhaps some sort of politics emerging, more contested politics emerging, was around education, sort of last summer and early autumn. If it's the case that we ended up in a situation in which there was more possibilities of restrictions on on schools, I don't think it's difficult to see how you get pretty quickly to a contested politics in education. But what happened last year was that when the, the government was basically trying to, I'd say, move to a, we need to prioritise protecting the health service and we need to prioritise and, and do that while keeping schools open at the, the same time. In the end, the government had to choose between those priorities uh, and chose the, the health service, particularly obviously in January with the, the third lockdown and the schools went back to um, being um, closed again. And, and that wasn't different in the different parts and, of the union. I, I don't think it's difficult to see, as you say, that as things get somewhat easier, that the question of what gets prioritised at, at a lower level of crisis beyond the emergency, so to speak, does become something in which we see more clearly different political positions being taken. And to put it too simplistically, but the politics of the last year and a bit have been sort of open shut in a way. <laughs> what stays open and what gets shut as things open up, then it's a whole different set of questions. Not about whether schools are open or shut, but about what goes on in them. Not about whether people are allowed to move around, but what happens when they do. Politics is going to get a lot, lot more contested. If you were advising emerging constitutional conventions, would you propose including exit language? And what would it look like? Should states have the right to leave and or should other states have the right to kick states out? Not least, I, I mean, seriously, you know, the, the politics of possible constitutional conventions is itself so hard to work through, not least how they're, how they're going to be convened, never mind what they end up deciding. But let's park that. And so what do you think, Helen? Secession issues in a future constitutional convention, do you have to confront them head on? I think, yes, in the end. I mean, I don't think in terms of expulsion that you do, I don't think that states have got the right to kick 
parts of the state out. No, and I think you can say of that, I mean, I was thinking this, when you reach that point, the constitution is broken down anyway. I mean, there is a point at which you don't have to, in a constitution, prepare for the circumstances in which your politics have failed. If a state, England kicks Scotland out of the union, well, we don't have a union anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was very striking at the constitutional convention that the the European Union had in the run-up to the constitutional um, treaty that ended up in its original form and being derailed by the the French and the Dutch nose in their referendum, though it was largely resurrected as the the Lisbon Treaty, that this question of whether there should be a a right to secede was a big question. And in the end, in the Lisbon Treaty, uh, the answer to that question was yes, and it materialised in Article 50, about which I don't think too many people at the time spent a lot of time thinking about what Article 50 in the Lisbon Treaty meant. But after the 23rd, well, I think it's five years ago today, as we're recording anyway, since the referendum, we've all learned an awful lot about what Article 50 meant since. I mean, I think that that showed how difficult it is to write into constitutions, so to speak, ways of allowing a a part of a union to lead that don't lead to some perverse consequences by the constitutional processes that are created. I mean, think of the role in which that two-year deadline and the need to either pass a withdrawal agreement or go to a no deal effectively played out. What is striking is the ways in which in the United Kingdom's politics is that we have come to a position where we're almost not entirely alone, but I think largely alone in acknowledging the non-English parts of the United Kingdom Union do have a right to secede. I mean, that was made um, explicit in Northern Ireland back in the early 1970s. It was made explicit in a different way by the actual referendum that took place in Scotland in, in, in 2014. And I think the the clear uh, implications of not only the Scottish referendum, but what had happened in relation to devolution and the means by which that came about effectively acknowledges a right of Wales to secede from the United Kingdom as well. And that isn't the norm, as we don't quite understand the implications of the fact that it isn't the norm. We, We can see these demands for secession in Europe working out very differently in terms of what happened in um, Catalonia and the fact that the Catalan government was pushed into what the Spanish government treated as an illegal referendum and then the legal action against the the Catalan um, leaders and the prison sentences they got there after. So these are really hard questions. I mean, my instinct is, and I hope this isn't just conditioned by the fact that, you know, you spend more time thinking about United kingdom's politics for obvious reasons that acknowledging that consent ultimately does matter in people staying in a political union is a better way to go than constantly trying to um, suppress the problem by disavowing any right to secede the only thing i would add to that is that if you try to imagine the scenario in which the uk does convene some kind of constitutional convention and starts to think through fundamental questions of the kind that we've discussed in this podcast for the last few years, that presumably would be in circumstances triggered in part at least by the Scottish question. And under those circumstances, it's it's impossible to imagine that that convention would then park the issue of, for instance, how Wales might leave the United Kingdom. I mean, particularly if this happened after a Scottish referendum in which Scotland voted for independence, 
it seems very, very unlikely that at that point anyone would think that you could have a constitutional, a future constitutional arrangement that didn't address these issues head on. So as a word, what Helen described is only going to become more pronounced in the UK case. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we acknowledge a right to secede. I and mean, we have done since, essentially, since Ireland seceded. But we haven't formalised it. Well, we formalised it in relation to Northern Ireland. And I think given the way in which our constitution sort of develops over time through conventions and adaptation, we've now formally acknowledged it in relation to Scotland by holding a referendum. And I think it would be incredibly difficult given the constitutional arguments for holding such referendums that have been deployed to turn around and say that there was no right of Wales to secede, that Wales' relationship to the Union doesn't ultimately depend upon consent. The much harder question, to which I don't think there is any answer that has constitutionally emerged in this country, was whether England would have a right to secede from the um, Union. But at that point, I think, as you say, then there isn't actually um, a Union. I suppose I was more thinking that, yes, the right is now accepted, but then there's the question about the rules. If we reach the point, we would be in a different tradition if we reach the point that some kind of convention was brought together to settle some constitutional questions in some kind of formal or formalised way. That's the implication here, I assume, that we're talking about going some way towards codifying the new arrangement. And the one thing that we don't have is a set of rules around this. It's absolutely clear. Each referendum is its own ad hoc thing, and it's decided by the sovereignty of parliament. But I suspect the pressure to establish some ground rules, which is the thing that isn't there at the moment, would be very strong. As I say, I think Northern Ireland is an exception because I think it's reasonably clear the the circumstances which lead to a uh, a border poll in Northern Ireland. But that, yeah, but that's precisely because there was that kind of arrangement in Northern Ireland that came through the Good Friday Agreement. But we haven't had that for the UK, the attempt to set the rules down. Again, I don't think you wouldn't have that without a written constitution. So it seems to me that the the tacit understandings that are then been codified actually in relation to Northern Ireland in the 1972 Act and then were accepted in practice in Scotland in, in 2014 are pretty strong. Excellent. The final question is, the Queen's longevity has enabled her to stay above the UK's changing politics and be a stabilising force, but would a King Charles be able to do the same? And what can or should the UK political system do to prepare for that change? Helen, I remember we've discussed this once or twice. I think there is a real question here, without wanting to sound morbid, that um, one can imagine circumstances in which the passing of the Queen was a, a unifying event. It really brought the nation and the nations together, that it had you know, both sentimental value and also got people to reflect on things in a way that was broadly positive. And one can imagine circumstances in which the passing of the Queen was really destabilising. And I remember you and I talked about there was... It's hard really to recapture it, but there was that really febrile period after the 2017 election when Theresa May was incredibly weak and damaged, the horror of the Grenfell Tower fire, that sense as she was cobbling together her deal with the DUP, Corbyn had, had done remarkably well, and yet there was real uncertainty about whether he, there was, was there a real possibility that the Conservative government that May was trying to put together would collapse. And you and I talked about that were the Queen to die at that point, it would be really destabilising. I think we both felt that you know it, it would be um, something that would you know, pull something out from the British political system. It would be hard to foresee what the consequences of that would be. And it, again, it, one can 
relatively easily imagine other circumstances in which things are pretty febrile, um, whether it's around Scotland and Northern Ireland and the fate of the union, whether we're in some kind of economic crisis. doesn't look for the moment like we're going to have as weak a government as that, where moving from Queen Elizabeth to King Charles III would be politically tough. <laughs> um, and what people would reflect on was that she gave something to British politics and in its absence it would be hard to recreate. There's a paradox here. On the on the one hand, it's pretty clear, and I think that was evident in the reaction to um, Prince Philip's death, that there is a very solid majority in the United Kingdom, or at least in Britain, for the monarchy, uh, and that there isn't a anywhere near significant enough Republican opinion to um, unsettle the monarchy from popular sentiment. Now, the counter argument to that would be, well, that's somewhat dependent upon, or maybe quite a bit dependent on Queen Elizabeth II herself. I mean, I'm not in the end convinced by that um, argument, but I see where people who make it um, are coming from. Moving to uh, the passage of time to another monarch can still be pretty destabilising. I think if you look at what's happened when, in this country's history, when long-standing monarchs have died and an heir has taken over, that that strange things can happen. Something almost like psychic in the country's politics that's in flux. I think that there are a set of issues, though, this time round that will be quite difficult because of the fact that once you get into the coronation, then certain things about the the monarch's position, not least in relation to the the Church of England, um, are going to be made very explicit at a time in which there's a lot of political contest about what the country's history means and how it can be thought about in the present in relation to its complexity, not least obviously in relation to uh, empire. So moving to a Charles III, or if you take some, another name, Charles III under a another name is going to bring some, I, want, I was going to say bring some really hard questions to the, the surface, but in some sense, those questions are already there about what British history means. And the passing from one monarch to another can only intensify that in ways that could be quite difficult. And if it were to occur at a time in which, for instance, say there was a minority government or questions about like after a general election in which who should be asked to be prime minister, and then you thrust this new monarch into that political situation i think then it has got the potential to be quite fraught next week we have a final round of questions on some more general themes we're going to be talking about prediction about our inspirations and about donald trump and we're also going to be letting you know about our plans for the summer and for the autumn do please join us for that my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics Our answers to these questions might be shorter, or they might not. <laughs> no. <laughs> they might be even longer. No, yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> yeah. Obviously not. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we make them all yes or no questions, at least I tried to answer the yes or no questions. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't qualify, it didn't matter. But <laughs> don't have them tell me I was wrong. <laughs>